If you would, go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, there's some under the chairs, and today's passage is on page 1008 in those Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible and you want one, you can feel free to take that one with you or, or another one from under one of the rows. Again, that was Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to read verses 32 through 40 this morning. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these... Though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. You've given it to us as a gracious gift for our instruction. And we thank you that you've also given us the gift of faith. God, I pray this morning that, that you would send your spirit to, to move us as your people, to, to challenge us, to encourage us, to convict us, to, to push us and call us to have faith where we do not. God, I pray that wherever we are this morning in our lives, whether we feel like we're conquering or we feel like we're being conquered, that you would call us to trust in you and that by our faith in you, regardless of our circumstances, that you would be glorified by us. God, I thank you that you sent your son, that he purchased our freedom from sin, that he paid the penalty for our sin and that he is our great high priest who mediates between us and you so that we're no longer enslaved to sin, but that we can live a new kind of life, a life of obedience to you. We thank you that he has saved us and that he is saving us and that he will save us. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. So today we're finishing up Hebrews 11. Um, and this passage was really great for me this week. Um, a lot of you know that about a year ago, a little over a year ago, my mom passed away, and this week was her birthday. And so like, as I'm preparing for this sermon, I'm thinking about that, and I was just reminded that over the course of the last year, there were multiple points where uh, in prayer or in conversations with people, you know, I thought, like, God, I'm, I'm mostly thankful that you're you're growing my faith through these circumstances that you're growing my faith through what's going on 
but, but it would kind of be great if, if maybe you stopped growing it that way for a while. Uh, if, if maybe this things went from, like, it really sucks right now to it's really great right now. And what this passage is going to show us is that in those moments, I was believing a lie. Right? I was believing the lie that I need more faith in times of suffering than I do in times of victory. That I need more faith when things are bad than I do when things are good. Because, because we fall for the illusion that when things are easy, that it's easy for us. And that maybe we don't need as much faith. Maybe we don't need to trust in God as much. Maybe we don't need to depend on him as much. Because, because I can do this all by myself. I don't need him because things, things are good. But what we're going to see in this passage today is that whether people are doing great, amazing things or whether they're being killed, the call for them is to keep trusting, to keep having faith, to keep believing that God is going to keep his promises to them regardless of their circumstances. And so it's my hope for you that you would see that in this passage today, that you would realize that regardless of what's going on in your life, whether you think things couldn't get any better than they are right now or whether you think they couldn't get any worse than they are right now, or whether you're somewhere in between, that you would realize that what God is calling you to do is to keep trusting him. No matter what your circumstances are, he's calling you to have faith in him, to believe that he will do what he said he will do, to believe that he has done what he says he has done, and to believe that he is who he says he is and that you are who he says you are. And so as we work through this passage, it's my hope that that's what you get out of it, that he, by his spirit, calls you to trust in him in ways that you haven't yet and to keep trusting him in ways that you are right now. So let's get into it. In verse 32, he starts by saying, what more shall I say? What he means here is that he could say a lot more. Right? He's already told us, he's given us example after example after example of these people from the Old Testament who had faith, who trusted in God. And now he gets to a point where he's saying, like, I could keep talking about this. I could talk about it all day, but I'm not going to. He's not going to because he wants to get to where we're going to get next week in chapter 12 where he begins to start applying things to the lives of his readers. He's been talking about who Jesus is. He's been talking about what he's done. He's been calling them to have faith. Now he's been talking about what faith is and giving them examples of that. And then next week he's going to turn a corner and start telling people what it looks like for them to have faith. He said this is what it looks like when these other people have faith. Now he's going to start unpacking that for this audience. And so here he's kind of wrapping things up in chapter 11. He's saying I could talk about this for a while but I'm not going to. He then says, For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets. He could keep talking about these people, but he's not going to. He's just going to go into this kind of rapid-fire list of examples from the Old Testament. And in this, he's going to give us a list of things that are great, right? People that conquered foreign armies, people that stopped the mouth of lions, people that did amazing things by faith for the glory of God. And he's also going to give us a negative list of people who were killed, who were tortured, who had horrible things happen to them, and by faith they endured them for God's glory. But he's going to do that very, very quickly because he wants to move on to what's next. He wants to apply this to us. But for today, let's focus on these examples that he gives us in this last chapter, or this last section of the chapter. What's, what's really, to me at least, interesting about this last group is the people that he gives us. Right? So far he's talked about 
Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Moses' parents, the people of Israel crossing the Red Sea, the people of Israel conquering Jericho, and Rahab. He's talked about these people who are widely accepted heroes of the faith. But in this last list, he gives us kind of confusing characters. Gideon, uh, in a lack of faith, demanded signs from God. Barak wouldn't go into battle when the Lord called him to. He was kind of a coward. Uh, Samson was impulsive and a philanderer. Jephthah impulsively vowed to sacrifice his own daughter. David abused his power as king, committed adultery, and then committed murder to cover it up. Samuel, he was okay. (laughs) But his sons weren't. And he, he appointed them as prophets anyway, as judges anyway, even though he knew they were a couple of bad guys. And so this is a strange place for him to go, to go to these examples, to go to these uh, very imperfect people, these people that we wouldn't maybe single out as examples of faith. Um, and so the question that we should ask is why? Why does he bring up these people? Why not bring up more people like Moses and Abraham? Not that those guys were perfect because they weren't perfect either, but they have a lot more examples of amazing faith in their life. And I think the reason why he goes there is because the purpose of faith is not so that we look at these characters and say, these people are amazing. You know, look at the, look at the amazing things they did. Samson stood between two pillars and took down a whole building to kill a bunch of God's enemies in his death. That takes an amazing amount of faith to do that. But the point isn't for us to look at Samson. The point is for us to see Samson's faith and to see what's beyond that. Because the purpose of faith is not to emphasize the faith, but to emphasize the object of faith. Right? And really, all that we've been talking about over the past four weeks is we've talked about faith is that it's something that we need because we need something other than ourselves. Faith is an admission that we're weak. Faith is an admission that we're insufficient. It's an admission that we're, we're not able to do it on our own, that we need something outside of us. And so faith is all about pointing to something else. It's all about bringing honor to the one who is sufficient, who is powerful, who is always strong and always perfect and never changes and never fails. That's why we must have faith, because we can't do it without it. Whether we're talking about great things or whether we're talking about suffering, we can't do either without having faith. And so that's what the author's calling us to. And that's why I think he turns to these people who are obviously weak and broken and imperfect, just like we are. Because he wants to emphasize how great God is as the object of their faith. Then he turns from the people to talk about what they did. Right, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lion, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Before we get into these, I just want to point out that these are all active things. Right? These are actions. You can't stop an army. You can't stop the mouth of a lion. You can't quench the power of fire by not doing anything. I think that's important for us to recognize as we've been talking about faith because faith is productive. It is active. It's not us just sitting on our butts and saying, you know, I just just really want to have a lot of faith right now. It's about 
having that trust in God and then doing something about it. That's what is happening in this passage. That's what's happening in all these examples that he's given us as he's talked about faith and emphasized the things that these people did by faith. They took action in the real world based on their faith that they had in God and that he was calling them to do things, that he would keep his promises to them, and they took action. And so if we want to have faith, we should be people that have that trust and then take action upon it. We walk in obedience. We walk by faith. We live by faith. Those are all things that we do, not just something that we feel. And the things they did are awesome. Right? Wouldn't you want some of this stuff to be on your resume? What makes you think you're qualified for this job? Well, I've stopped the mouths of lions. I've quenched the power of fire. I've put foreign armies to flight. Can any of you say that? (laughs) These are amazing things. And they're all things that these people in this list that he gave us, these people that we wouldn't point to as examples of faith, these are things that they did. Barak conquered Sisera. His story is pretty hilarious because Deborah, who's the judge, comes to him and she says, hey, God has given you your enemy into your hand. Like if you go out and, and lead God's army, you're going to win. And Barak says... I'll go if you go. If you go with me, I'll go. But otherwise, I'm a chicken. But he goes, and God uses him, uses Deborah alongside him to conquer a kingdom. Gideon conquered Midian. Samson beat down the Philistines. Jephthah conquered the Ammonites. David conquered tons of enemies. These men, by their faith, and women, by their faith, conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice as judges over Israel, David as king. They brought their people to a place where justice was celebrated in their land, where people weren't excluded and mistreated because of who they were. They enforced justice by faith. They obtained promises Right? Each of these guys, when they went into battle and they won, they did that by trusting in God's promise. God said, I'm going to give your enemy into your hand. And they said, I believe you. I'm going into battle. And God kept his promise to them. God promised David that uh, his son would be king after him. And he was. He promised David that his son would build a temple for him. And he did. He promised David that one day one of his descendants would come and take his throne and reign forever. And he does. They obtained promises. They had faith that God would do what he said he would do, and he did. They stopped the mouths of lions. This could refer to multiple people in the Old Testament, which is awesome. right? Samson and David both killed lions with their bare hands. Daniel was sent into the lion's den and trusted that God was going to deliver him, and he did. Because of that, God changed the king's mind. They quenched the power of fire. This is probably talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were thrown into the fiery furnace because they refused to bow to a foreign god. And God delivered them through the fire. He delivered them in the furnace. They escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. All of these did that by faith. 
Again, they trusted that God would give their enemies into their hands, and he did. Last, he says that women received back their dead by resurrection. Uh, Here he's talking about two different stories from the Old Testament. Both Elijah and Elisha brought back sons who had died for women. Uh, One of those is in 1 Kings 17, and one is in uh, 2 Kings 4. These men, the prophets, David, Samuel, Samson, Jephthah, Gideon, Barak, they all did amazing things by faith. And it would be great if we could stop here. If, If that's where this list ended. If it was just celebrating all the wonderful things that happened by faith. But it doesn't. The first part of the passage, the point that he's trying to make for us, is that God gives us victory by faith. But where he's going to go next is that he also empowers us through defeat by faith. And really, the rest of this passage should destroy any kind of an argument any Christian would ever make about you know, some sort of health and wealth and prosperity gospel. Right? This idea that like life will just be easy if we have faith. You'll, you'll never get sick, and you'll make a lot of money, and you'll have a nice house, and you'll have a nice job, and you'll have great kids, and all these wonderful things will happen to you if you just have enough faith. Listen to what he says. Some were tortured. That's not prosperity. Refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. That means they die after being tortured. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. This is stuff we do not want on our resume. Right, give me the faith that stops the mouth of lions, but don't give me the faith that calls me to endure suffering. But the problem with that is that God doesn't work that way and faith doesn't work that way. We're called to have faith no matter what he gives us. He says some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Here, the phrase, is it's, it's literally that they might obtain a better resurrection. Some people who were being tortured refused to give up their faith. They said, keep torturing me. And the reason why is because they wanted to obtain a better resurrection. Well, a better resurrection than what? He's talking about what he just said. First half of verse 35, he said, women received back their dead by resurrection. So these two sons who had died were raised from the dead for their moms. That's one kind of resurrection. They were brought back to life. But in the second half of verse 35, he says that the people who were tortured, that endured torture to the point of death, they were looking forward to a better resurrection than that one. They were looking for the the real resurrection, not just being brought back to life. And there's this poem that I love uh, by C.S. Lewis called Stephen to Lazarus. He's imagining it as, as a Stephen, the martyr, wrote this to Lazarus. This is what he says. 
But was I the first martyr who gave up no more than life while you, already free among the dead, your rags stripped off, your fetters shed, surrendered what all other men irrevocably keep and win, your battered ship at anchor lay, seemingly safe in the dark bay, no ripple stirs obediently, put out a second time to sea, well knowing that your death in vain died once, must all be died again. What Lewis, Lewis is saying through this poem is he's saying like Stephen is writing to Lazarus who's brought back to life and saying, man, you got the wrong end of that deal. Because Lazarus is raised to death, to die again. But Stephen gets martyred, gets stoned to life, to resurrection. So he's like, I, I got the better end. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is talking about. He's saying those two sons that Elijah and Elisha raised, they died again. They were brought back to this broken world full of pain and suffering. But these men and women who are tortured for their faith, who refuse to accept release, who refuse to give in and give up their faith, they trust God all the way to the end, and they rise to what's better. That's what he's calling us to by faith. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. Here, he's talking probably about the prophets. Jeremiah was beaten. He was put in the stocks. He was, he was mocked as a prophet when he was just doing what God called him to do. Uh, they were stoned. The prophet Zechariah was killed by stoning. They were sawn in two. Tradition tells us that this is how Isaiah the prophet died. He was cut in two with a wood saw. That's insane. Others were put to death by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. This could talk about any of the prophets of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Like we talked about last week when we, we covered the story of Moses, there's a long line of people in the Old Testament who, who suffered as God's servants. It's not limited to Moses and Daniel and Joseph. It includes an endless number of people whose names we'll never know, who suffered by faith for the glory of God. And just like we talked about last week, that continues today. All across the world, there are Christians who are suffering for their faith. They suffer mistreatment. They suffer mocking and flogging. They suffer torture and imprisonment. They suffer death. But like Moses, they do it because they're looking for the reward. They know that what's coming is more valuable than all the wealth, than all the success, than all the prosperity that this world could offer us. And he's calling us to trust him in that way too. The first half of the passage, he talks about what it looks like to, to have victory by faith. And the second part of the passage, he talks about what it looks like to have defeat, suffering, torment by faith. But where he goes next, I think, is most surprising to me. Verse 39, he says, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. So let's kind of recap what we've heard so far today. 
The first part, we hear all these people who did all these amazing things. Right? They, they stopped the power of fire. They conquered enemies. They put foreign armies to flight. They did amazing things by faith for God's glory. The second half of the passage, we hear about all these people who did terrifyingly amazing things for God's glory. They suffered torment. They suffered torture. Uh, they were imprisoned. They were mistreated. They, they were destitute by faith for God's glory. These two groups of people who we would look at and say, man, if, 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 if anyone deserves the grace of God and the mercy of God and God's reward, it's these people who did these things. And the author of Hebrews says, all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. That should be a surprising conclusion to us. Right after we read about their exploits, about what they did, we should think, clearly they got it. Clearly they deserved it. Clearly they inherited all that God had to give them. He says, no, they didn't receive what was promised. They received some promises, but they didn't receive the ultimate promise. They didn't receive the one who was promised, who was going to come, who was going to overturn the curse of the fall, who was going to redeem them and save them and bring them out from under the law. They didn't receive that. They were waiting for that. They were looking for that. They were hoping in that. They were trusting in that. And that's why they were able to have faith through all of these things. But they didn't get it. He didn't come in their lifetime. The author of Hebrews tells us why. Verse 40, since God had provided something better for us, they, though committed for their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had something better for us, for me, for you, for the readers of this book. What's, what's the better? Right, He's been talking all about that in the book of Hebrews. In chapters 1 through 10, he's talking about how Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the priests. He offers a better sacrifice than they do. He mediates a better law than they do. He is better. That's what he's been saying throughout this whole book. He's been emphasizing how much greater Jesus is than anything else to tell his readers that it's not worth it to turn aside to anything else because nothing else can offer the promise that he offers for his people. And that's what he wants us to get to. He wants us to get that it doesn't make any sense for us to try or think about or wonder about trusting in anyone else because no one else is better than he is. Not the Old Testament law, not anything that our world or our culture has to offer us. God had provided something better for us. In the midst of victory, they longed for, they looked for the one who would come and provide the ultimate victory. But he didn't come for them. In the midst of defeat, they looked forward to, they hoped in the promise that one day someone was going to come and deliver them and all of creation from suffering, but he didn't come yet. We get to look back and see that he has come, to see that all of those promises find their yes in Christ. And when we talk about the Bible, sometimes you hear the phrase, already not yet. What that's talking about is, is the reality that we live in this time period where some of God's promises have already been given to us, right? We have freedom from sin. 
The penalty's been taken away. Uh, but there's also stuff that's, that's not yet. Ways in which God's promises haven't been kept. God's people in the Old Testament, they lived all the way in the not yet. They were looking forward to and keeping his promises, but it was fully not yet for them. We get to live in this gracious period where a lot of his promises have already been kept for us. We get to look back on the one that they looked forward to and see that Christ has come, that he has put away our sin, that he has died in our place, that he has lived the perfect life of obedience for us. We get to have access to God because of what he's done. But we're still waiting for him to keep some promises. Look at how it ends. God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. How many of you are perfect? Right? None of us are. And if you think that you are, you're very misguided, and I would love to talk to you afterwards. We're not perfect. That's a promise that we're waiting for. And Hebrews tells us that they're waiting for it too. We're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. The world that's not just better than this one, but is perfect. To where sin is, is not even an option anymore. To where suffering isn't even an option anymore. To where death isn't even an option anymore. To where all of the sad things are untrue, don't exist anymore. That's what we're hoping, and that's what we're looking forward to. That's how we're able to have faith in this time, whether things are going great or whether things are going horribly wrong. We know that whether it's good or bad in this world, it is still horribly bad compared to the perfection that we're waiting for. Even the best things in this life will be better. We should trust God that that's true. We shouldn't allow our hearts to be satisfied by counterfeit pleasures now, but instead should long for the promises that are yet to be kept to us. Because that's what's going to enable us to keep trusting in him, whether things are good or whether things are bad. That's what is going to enable us to have faith, even at the darkest or the best times. Next week, he's going to turn the corner and start giving us commands about how faith should look in our lives, about how it should work itself out, the kind of actions it should produce in us. But today, I mean, I would just encourage you to hear what it is that he's calling us to in chapter 11 as he gives us all these examples. He doesn't want us to look at these examples and say, man, these people are great and they did great things. He wants us to look at these examples and see the object of their faith that is the object of our faith and that he is great and that he keeps his promises, that he will do what he said he will do, that he has done what he says he has done, that he is who he says he is and that we are who he says we are and that we would keep trusting in him no matter what happens. Whether things couldn't get any worse in your life or whether they couldn't get any better. Keep trusting in him. Keep believing that he is who he says he is and that he's done what he says he's done. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, I would encourage you to think about just that reality that he's already kept so many of his promises to us and yet we're still waiting for him to keep all of them. Paul, when he talks about the Lord's Supper, he says that whenever we, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, uh, 
we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In that statement, Paul is talking about the already not yet. His death has happened, right? He's purchased our freedom from sin. He's paid the penalty for our sin. Uh, He's made us right with God. He's brought us into God's presence. And yet, we're still waiting for him to come. We're still waiting for him to bring the new heavens and the new earth and to remake this world in the perfect way that it was always supposed to be. So as you celebrate the Lord's Supper, think about that. Think about the fact that what it represents is that so much has already been done for you. And even as we thank him for that, we're longing for him to finish the work, for him to bring it in perfection, to make us perfect. Not so that we can look at us and say, look at how perfect I am, but so that we can say, only God can do that for me. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that all of your Father's promises find their yes in you. And that you have made us recipients of those promises. We thank you that you have already done so much for us. And we pray that you would help us by faith to keep trusting in your work on our behalf. I pray that by faith you would help us to keep longing and to keep hoping for the the completion, the perfection of all your promises. Help us to fix our eyes on you and to not be distracted or, or weighed down or easily entangled by anything in this world that would seek to keep us from you. I pray now that as we celebrate your death on our behalf, that you would send your spirit to to enable us to proclaim your death and what it represents to, to ourselves and to others as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and that we would also remember that we are waiting, we are longing, we are needy and desperate for your return. It's in your name we pray. Amen.